All of that understanding falls short if we fail to understand why does this matter? Why is it important? So our aspiration will be very simple. Twofold. We want to know, this is not in your PowerPoint, okay? Full disclaimer, it will look a little bit different because I changed it just for visibility's sake. That's okay. Write it in the margins, okay? Blame Ian in the back for it. Um, Number one, know the work that God accomplished in what we now refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Right on cue. Secondly, be lit on fire by the enormous implications behind the power of God's hand in history. Still hear me? Perfect. All right. Now, we've covered this extensively in Fundamentals of the Faith, but the Bible's very clear to all of us that we are all sinners and we are not right with God. We are under the wrath of God. And so the question is, well, then how can you, a guilty sinner, get into a relationship with God that is peaceable, forgiven, accepted, and God 100% for you? Turns out, God is a very specific way, i.e. the gospel, whereby rebellious sinners are made right with himself. How do you and I get into that relationship is the question. And the answer of the Reformation were five simple statements. The gospel makes way for us being loved and being forgiven and being accepted. And my favorite part, God 100% for us. Not 98% for us, but 100% for us. We have a lot of individuals today who live with a God who is 98% for them, right? And they live and they suffer under the shadow of that other 2%. Well, the Reformation was all about dispelling and removing that 2% realm of confusion. It was all about bringing God's people to five positive freeing statements. And here they are. That according to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. We'll cover each of those very, very briefly today. And as we do, we're going to leave here not only marveling what God has accomplished in bringing His church to these statements and to this gospel, but obviously overwhelmed by what we hope is a tidal wave of gratitude as well as fortified in our convictions. Protestant Reformation. We've heard the phrase before, just to give a synopsis, this was a a movement in the 16th century in a movement aimed initially at doing what? It was aimed at reforming, i.e. reformation, the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And truth be told, here you still have the two main divides even today. You have Protestantism on one side, which is where we would be, and you have Catholicism on another side. Protestantism and Catholicism. Now, it's at this point that many people begin to say, well, why can't we all just come together? Why can't we be one big happy family? Why can't we all just get along? 
Uh, Friends, when we find ourselves asking those type of questions, why can't we all get along and why can't we be together, we're missing some rather significant major differences that reside between us. And I say they're serious because the stakes behind those differences are of the highest order, of extreme importance, and I would say even eternal significance. In many regards, those differences between Protestantism and Catholicism is the difference between life and death, or even heaven and hell. So this, friends, is why the Scripture is so abundantly clear. We, God's people, are called to take some rather very definitive stance, right? 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is called the pillar and buttress of the truth. We hold up the truth, pillar, and we keep out that which would diminish the truth, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so God desires for us to take some very definitive stands on his written revelation. This is why we can address the question, why can't we just be one big happy family? It's because these differences matter to God. Now, the reason I say that is please don't interpret October 31st and 9 a.m. equip hour at North Lake Bible Church to be bash Catholic Sunday. That is not what we're doing here. This is us ensuring that we are properly grounded in the gospel. That we know it unequivocally as God has revealed it in His Word. Also ensuring that hopefully we'll be properly shielded from all of those religious teachings and form of thought that would lead us away from this pure gospel. You're going to interact with neighbors, perhaps this evening in your neighborhood or with friends. And there are a myriad of understandings that people possess as they're even approaching your door. And you need to be very mindful of this this morning. Let's set the table for our blitz journey through this. When we talk about the Protestant Reformation, there were several figures in church history, precursors to this movement, individuals who said some things and did some things and even wrote some things that we would say even led into this Reformation Reformation movement. Let's cover a few of them this morning. The first, right out the gate, you can't move any further without mentioning a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe has a nickname in church history. He's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Why that's the case will be made plain in a moment. Today there is the Wycliffe Society that is named after this individual. Perhaps you've heard of it. And their aim is to translate the Bible in languages that do not yet have a copy of the Scriptures in their own language. One of their monikers is It helps men to study the Bible in that language that they know best. And that's their aim. And so there's a lot of confusion about this today, about the need for God's word to be translated and written in man's common tongue. A recent survey shows that actually 72% of Americans believe that the Bible is available to the entire world. And yet that is simply not the case. And it's not the case by a lot. 
Well, it's not available to 57% of the world's population. 1.5 billion people don't have a full Bible in their own language. That is 1.5 billion Bibleless individuals in the world. So the Wycliffe organization was all about spreading out across the globe and translating the Bible in people's common tongue. Right now, they're working over 2,000 languages as we speak. Now, here's where the legacy of John Wycliffe really shows up and comes into focus. This, in a sense, is the continuation of Wycliffe's work that he began many years ago. This morning star of the Reformation. You see, the morning star is not actually a star at all, but the planet Venus, which appears brilliantly right before the sun does what? Rises in the east, and as darkness is still pervasive across the horizon in the west. This is why Wycliffe is referred to as the morning star. In his day, make no mistake about it, darkness dominated the horizon and landscape of his time. But as Wycliffe came into the scene and those who would come after him, light was soon to follow, was it not? And it was in the form of the Reformation, which he was critical for. What exactly did Wycliffe do? If attacked, what he saw were the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, and let's just walk through several. For starters, you had the selling of indulgences, and this really got into the crawl of John Wycliffe. Everyone here has heard of selling of indulgences, correct? That's where this is a big deal. At the time of Wycliffe's teaching, the Roman Catholic Church were teaching that people could give money to the church in an exchange for an adult indulgence. In other words, you could go to a priest and that priest would say, well, you know, your dad and your mom and your sister and brother who have since died before you, they really weren't a good enough Christian to get into heaven, but they also weren't a bad enough Christian to send them to hell. And so they're in a place called purgatory. Everyone's heard of purgatory, yes? Here's the thing, though, about purgatory. There's absolutely no mention of a place called purgatory in the whole of our Bibles. So this was a dogma and a teaching that had been crafted and propagated that was not and is not explicitly in Scripture. So in the time of Wycliffe, the, the Roman Catholic Church began stacking one error on top of another in order to take advantage of people. Catholic Church were telling people, listen, if you give money to the church, then as a result, the priest will pray for your mom and your dad and your sister and your brother, and then they're not going to spend as long in purgatory. They'll be released sooner. And what quickly began to happen is that priests realized there was a major degree of profit to be made in this practice. I mean, we can build bigger and better cathedrals if we really just keep this machine going. And it took on some rather egregious and grotesque forms. Well, God's people began buying this deception hook, line, and sinker. And we have to ask, why were the people of God so susceptible to this deception? 
Are they susceptible? Is because they did not have this readily available in their own language. That's where Wycliffe comes in. He begins to translate the Bible in man's common tongue so that they wouldn't be so radically and easily swept away. Wycliffe also condemned several other things. One would be the excessive veneration of the saints. And you can still see this today, right? We can just walk into various places of worship and you still see artwork and sculptures that are put on display this excessive veneration of the saints. A couple of years ago, Natalie went to Bosnia to visit a friend and you'd go into a place of worship there and there was not an open place on the wall. I mean, ceiling, corners, uh, and high ceilings. There are saints everywhere, sculptures and paintings. And you walk in and then right somewhere in the melee and the chaos and confusion is this rep- representation of a cross and Christ who's of equal size as every other saint in this building. So that if you walk in, you have a hard time knowing who or what is the actual focus in this place. And friends, it should never be confusing as to what the focus is, right? This was happening in Wycliffe's day. Wycliffe was very adamant that, listen, there's a place to honor those who have gone before us, but I'm looking around here and what we have is excessive. In fact, one big area of disagreement was the veneration of Mary herself. To this day, many of our Catholic neighbors, in your own neighborhoods, they will pray to who? They will pray to Mary, and they believe that Mary will then go on their behalf to Jesus. Because after all, she is the mother of Jesus. Yet Northlake, again, it's important to mention what? And we say this again. We're a broken record. There's no no place mentioned in Scripture that the Bible ever presents to us or prescribes for us this practice of going to Mary so that she can then go before the Father or the Son on our behalf. So Wycliffe and naturally the Reformers, and rightfully so, they they came along and said, listen, this veneration is out of place. It's, It's out of bounds. It's inappropriate. It's unbiblical. Yes, Mary is an important person in in history. She is, after all, the one chosen by God to carry and raise the Messiah. But here's the thing. Mary was a sinner just like you and I. She, too, needed to be forgiven of her sins, just like you and I do. So Protestants look at this practice and say, listen, you're really venerating these people in an inappropriate way. This kind of veneration is reserved for one. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Wycliffe said, this has to stop yesterday. On top of this, he was also equally troubled by the very low moral standard and bar that the priests were living by in his day. There was rampant ungodliness and wickedness even in the priesthood in his day. Coupled with that, he refuted this doctrine known as transubstantiation. Now we're We're moving really fast because we have a lot of ground to cover. Transubstantiation. Within churches, there's a disagreement over the essence and meaning of communion, the Lord's Supper. Protestant churches and Catholic churches, they both observe communion, but they do so in very, very different ways. You see, transubstantiation is this belief 
that in the Catholic Church, that the bread and the wine, when the priest sets it upon your tongue, it in that moment instantaneously and miraculously becomes the literal and physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. Protestants came along and said, hold on a second. That's not what we see in our Bibles. We believe that the bread and the wine are but representations of the body and blood of Jesus Christ and nothing more. He had agree, disagreed with transubstantiation adamantly. Why? It's because Wycliffe knew his Bible. Above all of this, and speaking of the Bible... The chief affirmation of all affirmations that Wycliffe held out during his time was the conviction that this book, the Bible, was the sole standard for Christian life as well as doctrine. And truth be told, this by, by far is probably the most important and where we all have to start. This is where the Catholic Church went awry. He believed that the authority of the Pope was not grounded in Scripture. And this was a big one for Protestants, to be quite honest. They turned to the Roman Catholic Church and they said, listen, we, we understand that you attribute a great amount of authority to the Pope and you see him as the vicar of Christ himself. But they said, you know what? We just don't recognize his authority in the same way that you do. He is a man just like us. He wakes up, wakes up in the morning and puts his pants on just like I put my pants on. They said, we believe the Pope, therefore, does not represent Christ before us. In fact, we'll look at this over the weeks and months to come in the book of Hebrews incessantly and repeatedly that Protestants believed in something known as the priesthood of believers. That if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, that I am a priest before God and you are a priest before God. We don't need this individual. We have one mediator and his name is Jesus Christ. And we go to him directly. So according to Protestants, the authority resides in this book. This is God's will written for you and I, and nothing and no one else can usurp this book. So if anyone comes along and disagrees with this, the Protestants say we have to go back to the book every time. And that was their plea, and that was their quest to reform the Catholic Church, and why Wycliffe was so relentless in his efforts to translate the Bible in people's common language. Friends, this came at a great cost to John Wycliffe, didn't it? This was an act that was deemed punishable by death in Wycliffe's day. But it made no difference to Wycliffe. He kept translating, he kept writing, he kept teaching. Why is that the case? It's because the cause and what was at stake for Wycliffe was incredibly, incredibly great and significant. This is why we say he's the morning star. He got the ball rolling even a hundred years before the Reformation actually exploded and took off. Wycliffe would die from a stroke on a Christmas Eve service in 1384, dying exactly almost a hundred years before Martin Luther was born. But obviously his impact on the Reformation, that work to translate the Bible, that impression, that 
significance is unmistakable to what would happen a hundred years later. Forty-three years after his death, the Pope would have would declare John Wycliffe a heretic. He would instruct a band of men to dig up his bones. He would have those bones burned, and he would spread its remains in the river Swift. Many of Wycliffe's sympathizers in the years after would go on to themselves be burned at the stake because of these beliefs and convictions. He's indeed the morning star of the Reformation. Also came a man by the name of John Huss, or Hoos, depending on where you're from. In the South, we say Huss. John Hoos. Now, aren't you grateful God raises up men and women in church history? And he does so in different ways. History is replete with said individuals. John Hoos. Hoos argued that Jesus Christ alone, rather than ecclesiastical officials, was the true head of the church. Well, you can see that this didn't go over too well for for John Hoos, as they would end up like Wycliffe's followers, they would burn him at the stake. In history, Hoos is often referred to as the goose that was cooked, because Hoos in Czech means goose. Before being tied to the stake, he would say the following. He said, you may roast the goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Friends, any guesses who that swan would be a hundred years later? Martin Luther. Exactly 102 years later, that swan would be known as Martin Luther, a bit pro- Prophetic for Hus there being burned. Church history records that Hus sang praises to God and prayed for his persecutors while the flames rose higher and higher. November 15, 1999, it's a great year. Graduated high school in 99. Pope John Paul II issued apology, an apology on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church essentially saying, my bad, having Hus burned at the stake. These men and others like them led into what is now known as the actual moment in time that the Protestant Reformation was launched. Another key figure during the actual Reformation was Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli lived in 1484 to 1531. He was a Swiss theologian and he was a leader of early reformational movements in Switzerland. He, like those around him, also vigorously denounced the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church and did so definitively in the year 1518. You have to move along. Right around the same time, a man by the name of John Calvin arose. He lived in 1509 to 1564 and he was a French theologian. He was a reformer who escaped religious persecution in France, and he ended up settling in Geneva in 1536. There he instituted a form of church government now known as the Presbyterian Church. There's another man who followed John Calvin, still in the same stream, and his name was John Knox. Year 1514 to 1572, 
John Knox arose and denounced the same practices and corruptions that called upon the same reform of the Catholic Church. After Knox, there was this moment in time in 1517 that is really the defining moment of the Protestant Reformation. A hundred years later, a swan will arise that you will not be able to silence. Enters in Martin Luther. We're going to sing a song this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. Written by this same individual. You're familiar with the account in church history in 1517 and really one of the biggest events that took place in Western history, Martin Luther. This German Augustinian monk posted his 95 thesis on the door of a university town known as Wittenberg, Germany. That particular act, believe it or not, was a very common practice in Luther's day. Basically, what Luther was doing was inviting the officials of the church to join him in debating regarding the concepts he had outlined in his 95 Theses. And so he walked up to that door and he took a nail and he took a hammer and by applying both of those together, he was essentially inviting them to debate and dialogue and discuss the differences that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. And they were differences that were not unlike Hus, Knox, and Zwingli, Calvin. They were the same differences, the same plea for reformation to occur in the Catholic Church. You have to remember, Luther's an Augustinian monk, so he, monk, he's part of this Roman Catholic Church of which he's calling on them to reform. But his propositions challenge some rather major portions of this Catholic doctrine. And he did so in a number of very different significant practices, which included, among other things, the selling of indulgences. The problem is, like those before him, this didn't go over too well for Luther. And as the hope of reforming the Roman Catholic Church began to fade, the Protestants were forced to separate from Roman Catholicism. Thus, protest, Protestant Reformation. They were forced to protest via separation. This ended up resulting in the Protestant explosion of churches all across Europe in the years after. Lutheran churches were started in Germany and Switzerland. Other Reformed churches sprouted up in Switzerland and France and Netherlands and Scotland, the Anglican, Anglican Church in England. And all of these have evolved into Protestant denominations that we have still today. Each of these denominations, they rallied around these five statements that are known as the five solas. Sola meaning only. Alone, singular. Five powerful statements. Let's just walk through them quickly now this morning. If, there, if this was their rallying cry, and if they're pleading for the Catholic Church to reform and come back to the teaching of Scripture, what were those key areas of which they were crying out to them to reform and change? Number one is sola scriptura. According to Scripture alone. 
doesn't sound all that elaborate and doesn't sound all that profound, but it is profound in its implications, is it not? Bible was the cry of the Reformation. They said it alone is the sole source of written divine revelation. It alone has the authority to bind Christians' consciences. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for salvation from sin, and it alone is the standard for Christian behavior and life and doctrine. Everything has to be measured by Scripture alone. Not the Pope, not some edict, but Scripture alone was their cry. Now, inherent in each of these five positive statements, because make no mistake about it, these are affirmations. These are beliefs according to Scripture alone. Well, when you have an affirmation and when you have a belief, inherent in that is the other side of the coin that you're also equally denying something else, right? So that in these affirmations, there are these denials. Since we are saying this, that means we are also denying that. As they declared Scripture alone, that means that they denied that any creed, any council, any individual, none of them can bind a believer's conscience. They argued that the Bible alone was the sole authority for mankind. And so therefore, they said that when the council or when an edict disagrees with the Bible, disagrees with the Word of God, the Protestants said we have to go always with the Bible. This, as you can imagine, created a lot, a lot of conflict in the Reformers' day. John Wesley later came along and affirmed this by saying the church is to be judged by the Scriptures and not the Scriptures by the church. See, Northlake, the, the authority of Scripture is ultimately the core of the disagreement in the Protestant Reformation. This is where the Catholic Church went awry. These men and women were protesting what the Roman Catholic Church had constructed and held out above and beyond the Word of God. And they pleaded with them to reform and to correct this erroneous teaching. When the Catholic Church resisted that reform, and they did so vehemently, the Reformers were forced to break off and separate themselves from Catholicism. Second sola, sola scriptura, that according to Scripture alone, we are saved by, remember, how do we get into a right relationship with God? We are saved by grace alone. And we love grace. Amen? In salvation, the Reformers said, we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. Grace, undeserved favor. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ. And it's by His grace that He releases us from the bondage of sin and raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's grace plus nothing else. This is what the Reformers said. They said our justification, getting into a relationship with God that is peaceable and right and forgiven and accepted, rest on any merit in us. It's all of grace. 
We spent a lot of time in Ephesians 2 thus far in Fundamentals of the Faith, right? And the temptation is, is to say, well, great, this is great, great news. I, I can receive this undeserved favor and then I can go about living any way that I want to. Well, that's not what Ephesians 2 tells us, is it? Salvation comes by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the what? Gift of God so that no one can boast, right? Verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, created to do what? Good works. To do good works which God prepared beforehand, ordained that I should do them. The point is this. As a Christian who have been granted salvation, forgiveness of sins, I am to live a life that honors and pleases the Lord. Friends, I don't do those things in order to get saved. Do those things and you do those things because I am saved. And that's a significant difference to the Reformation. You see, my heart is now one of gratitude. Yes? It's one of thankfulness because I realize I don't deserve any of this. This forgiveness, this lavish gift, this work of Christ on on my behalf was nothing of my own doing. Jesus graciously did the work for me. And He did it in full. So that if I look upon Him and His work in faith, I can be forgiven of my sins. Now my impulse, now your compulsion is, Lord, I want to live a life that honors You. Not because I feel like I have to swing the weights and scale and balances in order to, for you to let me into your heaven. I say this, North Lake, and this is important for us to be mindful of because you're going to have people this, this evening, they're going to knock on a door, they're, you're, you're going to dispense some items to them. Hopefully you, you grab some bracelets and grab some tracks and you're going to greet them warmly and conversation will ensue. But there are going to be people who are approaching your door. They're going to walk up your driveway and to to the front entrance of your house. And they will have this notion in the back of their mind that if I could just be a good enough person. And they have this damning, erroneous idea locked into their minds and the world perpetuates this. That if they can just have enough on the side of the scale of goodness, as if there was anything, right? Isaiah All of our deeds are filthy rags. Romans 3, there's no one righteous. No, not even one. If I could just be a good enough person. Hopefully you are mindful of that as you are interacting with people. Every person that walks up to your door is bankrupt, has nothing to offer God. And everyone is in equal need of one. And His name is Jesus. Thankfully, Hopefully, by God's grace, you know this one this morning and you have the opportunity to hold him out and him alone to others you will be interacting with this evening. We have to move on. It's by grace alone, but it's also by faith alone. According to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Justification is that big million dollar theological word that means to be made or declared right with God. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Faith alone in the person of Christ is the instrumental means of our salvation. In other words, human methods, human techniques, human strategies by themselves cannot accomplish the transformative work that needs to happen in each one of us. It's by grace through faith. I must look to Christ alone, and I must place my unabandoned trust wholly in Him. His substitutionary death on my behalf, He died, was buried, was raised three days later, and empowered by the Spirit, I now look upon that finished work in faith as the only way for me to be forgiven of my sins. You know what's remarkable is that even that act of looking upon that finished work is a gift of God, yes? Saving faith is of the free grace of God. The Bible clearly says, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. We've covered that extensively in FOF. So if there's any hope that my eyes would behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ, if there's ever any hope that I would be devastatingly ruined by the depths of my sin, and if there's ever any hope that I would abandon myself upon the mercy seat of God and cling to those nail-pierced feet of Jesus Christ, God, by His grace, has to do something in me. He's going to have to grant to me the faith that is needed. And He graciously does. To grant to me the vehicle that is required. Salvation is by grace through faith, so that no one can boast. Amen? Which we say, faith in what? What, where, or who should our faith lie? Leads us to the fourth sola of the Reformation. It's in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. Mediatorial. Say it again, mediatorial. Okay, it's just a fun, fun word to say. What does that mean? Jesus stands between you and a holy God. In justification, Christ's righteousness, His perfect life that He lived that you could not, is imputed to those who place their faith in Him. And that righteousness, His righteousness, is the only possible satisfaction that God accepts for sinners being made right with Himself. See, the only way that God's anger towards us is satisfied is through the imputed work of Christ on the cross. Imputation is another equally beautiful word. What does it mean? It means a righteousness that was alien to me not intrinsic or natural to me. A righteousness that I possibly, I could not possibly come up with on my own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to me. It's now imputed into, onto my behalf. It's accredited to me. So that now the Father looks at me, He looks at you if your faith is in Christ, and He says the price is paid in part. In full. Friends, we sing a wonderful, wonderful song, do we not? Jesus paid it 
all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. God imputed to us an alien righteousness. A holy God that we will sing to this morning and we will worship. And when we say this and believe that He is a holy God, that also equally means He can't just simply turn a blind eye to sin. And He can't turn a blind eye to your neighbors who will approach you this evening. He can't turn a blind eye to their sin either. His character would not allow Him to simply ignore the need for His wrath to be satisfied. See, salvation is not simply God relenting back His wrath. Salvation is simply God redirecting His wrath to someone else instead of you. Who did He direct that wrath to? His own Son on a cross some 2,000 years ago. Lived a perfect life, Romans 8, obeyed the law in every way. Did what the law, as weak as though it was, could not do. He did in His flesh, right? Taking on a human form, being nailed, His substitutionary atonement pouring out of His blood so that my sins could be covered and paid in full. This is what the Reformers were crying out for the Catholic Church. Denounce this notion that man can merit salvation through their own works and life. It's only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And number five, fifth sola, and appropriately brings us to sola number five, sola dea gloria. We are saved for the glory of God alone. According to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Since salvation is exclusively a work of God, and it is, friends, who alone is worthy of our praise, adoration, and worship? God is. Why did God save mankind? Is it because mankind was so wonderful and special and unique and desirable? If you look at the Old Testament and God's even election of the nation of Israel, you see, He looked upon this and said, listen, I chose you not because you were a people that were great. You are not. And they displayed that in incredible fashion in the years that would come. I chose you because I love you. I rose up a people for Myself. For my glory, right? You you have to love Ephesians 1 that echoes this, right? There's this wonderful phrase that's just a beating drum in Ephesians 1. To the praise of His glorious grace. Which, what is the book of Ephesians about? The eternal plan of God in salvation. To the praise of His glorious grace. It was all for His glory. What does that do to us this morning? It humbles us, does it not? I brought nothing. I'm going to walk into that next room beside us here the second hour, and I am bankrupt apart from the grace and mercy of God. 
That should radically alter how you open your mouth this morning and belt out songs of praise to God. Yes? We should be a grateful people. We should be a humble people. And we should be an impassioned people to what end? I have this treasure known as the gospel where I I know definitively with every fabric of my being that according to Scripture alone, man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Ding dong. Oh, hello. Welcome. I have this, not a bag of Jolly Ranchers. Not a bag of Tootsie Rolls, which I despise. I have this treasure in earthen, in an earthen vessel. And what is this earthen vessel called to do? Pour out this treasure. Steward this treasure. Proclaim this treasure. Why? Because I know through the Gospel how that person standing in front of me is made right with a holy God. I hope and pray this morning that North Lake Bible Church would steward this Sunday, October 31st. And I hope that's your prayer as well this morning. We're going to take just a moment. We're going to pray for our pastor. We're going to pray for our time that the Lord would be honored not only with our next hour, but the whole of today. Father, we pray this morning. Two things quickly come to mind. We want to be quick to say, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Where we live in any way that's in contradiction to this gospel that we just quickly overviewed this morning. Lord, ways in which perhaps we've taken them for granted. Ways in which we've, Lord, probably no doubt become cold and apathetic to and not given appropriate attention to. We, we've embarked upon a busy day in raising family and, and rearing children and going to work. And Lord, we get consumed with very, very much lesser, lesser things. Lord, forgive us. Deal with us, convict us, rebuke us, correct us. Help us to be consumed with things which are above. Lord, we ask that in your mercy as you do that, that you would help us and fuel us and energize us to render to you this morning what you rightfully deserve, which is all praise and all glory and honor. Pray that you would be delighted to use this morning, that if there be someone here that be not in Christ, that today would be the day that their, their eyes would be open. Light would flood into their soul and they would go forth knowing that their, their only hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Would you do this miracle for your glory, Lord? And we pray that you would use today, Lord, would you give us conversations? Would you help us to interact with people around us? And Lord, be Fill us with courage and boldness and clarity of thought and help us not to be reliant upon our own human words, but to just be faithful. Lord, help us to be faithful. And we entrust the work of you saving sinners entirely up to you. We thank you this morning and we pray all of this now in Jesus Christ. Amen.